pervasive problem of knowing who's a dog on the internet, why ransomware is impeding the progress of IoT, and thinking twice before pressing record. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. The 1993 New Yorker cartoon of the two dogs discussing their presence on the internet is infamous in cybersecurity circles. Nearly three decades on, the problem of online identity management still remains, which is never more important than it is today with the remote workforce and the ability for sophisticated manipulation of identities. ISMG's Senior Vice President of Editorial, Tom Field, spoke with Jeremy Grant, Managing Director for Technology Business Strategy at the law firm Venable this week, who brought up the point that the internet dogs, in fact their children, are probably long dead by now. So why is the problem of identity management online so persistent still? Here's Jeremy. Well, see, look, we've still got plenty of problems in authentication. I mean, the number of companies who just sent everybody home and had them log in with nothing but a password, well, guess what? You know, the bad guys were looking at that and said, hmm, we can do some things here. And, you know, not coincidentally, if you look at the recent earnings statements from some of the companies that do multi-factor authentication that are publicly traded, uh, they all had some pretty good quarters, uh, which was you know, both good to see in terms of it meant that, you know, plenty of people were scrambling to get that extra layer of protection. Um, but, you know, a little disappointing that it took something like this for them to actually get serious about it. And so I, I think, you know, there's certainly a lot of vulnerabilities there. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, you know, telework guidance, uh, there's, there's just a lot more uh, attack surface that's out there right now, I think, with people being home. Um, But what we're really seeing issues, you know, getting back to what I mentioned before about how hard identity proofing is becoming is, um, you know, it's really hard to figure out who's a dog on the Internet. You know, we're going to be, you know, in June, I think, 27 years. It'll be since 1993 when Pete Steiner's famous cartoon was, uh, uh, you know, first published uh, where the dog's on the computer and says to his friend, hey, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Um, 27 years is a long time. Those dogs are dead now because dog years and, and their kids are probably gone too. But the problem's actually with us more than ever. Um, and in fact, it, it's been getting worse in that, you know, in 1993, it was good for a few yucks about what it was like going online in the early days. Today, it's been actively weaponized against us uh, in terms of people impersonating identities online uh, to commit crimes uh, or see nation states uh, look to weaponize anonymity uh, through social media against us to interfere in our democracy. You know, the the challenges are pretty significant. I think one thing we've seen with identity proofing in COVID is, you know, there's a lot of transactions that historically haven't been online because the risk model is such that if you can't figure out who's on the other end of a transaction, you you have to come in in person. Uh, You know, certain bank loans or, you know, government transactions, you know, certainly stand out there. Well, now in person is verboten. So what do you do? Well, from the government's perspective, you know, the White House put out a policy memo in the middle of March, basically telling some agencies to suspend citizen-facing services that required in-person appearances. Their their take was, look, if you don't have a way to figure out who's who online, if you can't deliver it remotely, uh, we're not going to do this. Um, Certainly some of the the banks and other, you know, service providers I work with have all been working overdrive to try to pivot to support more robust identity proofing. And, you know, a challenge there is that the tools we have today just aren't good enough. You know, we've generally outsourced uh, a lot of the way we do remote identity proofing uh, to companies like the credit bureaus using knowledge-based uh, authentication, knowledge-based verification. 
you know, it's stuff that, that worked for a while, but the attackers have caught up with it. And I think we're, you know, seeing a lot of people scrambling now to try and figure out how do we get to something better? And, you know, do we have the technology or the tools today uh, to do that? And are there other things that industry can do to solve it on its own? Or does government need to help? You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Ransomware and other forms of online attacks are a pervasive problem. So much so that they're stifling adoption of IoT projects for many companies. According to recent research in the Omdia Cyniverse IoT Enterprise Survey of over 200 enterprises, 86% reported that IoT projects were delayed or constrained by security issues. With more on the research findings, here's ISMG's Managing Editor, Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk. According to a new survey, worries over ransomware and malware are slowing down enterprise IoT deployments. 86% of 200 enterprises in North America and Europe reported that IoT projects were delayed or constrained by security. The survey was conducted by analyst House Omdia on behalf of Cineverse, which in part specializes in private networks specifically for fleets of IoT devices. The survey covered companies in healthcare, financial services, manufacturing, retail and hospitality, and transportation. Their concerns over IoT vary. For example, the manufacturing industry is most worried about unauthorized devices joining the network. Healthcare and finance rank regulatory and compliance concerns high. Security concerns over IoT are driving up the cost of deployments. Enterprises reported that security was consuming between 10 to 30% of the overall IoT budget. For retail and healthcare, it was even higher. Half of the respondents in those verticals reported spending between 20 to 30% of the IoT budget on security. Other worries include data integrity plus network and device security. To deal with those issues, enterprises are using strategies such as network-based IoT security policies, real-time monitoring of systems and traffic, dedicated IoT security teams, and regular vulnerability assessments. They're also focusing on end-to-end encryption. For the network component, more than half of enterprises are putting IoT devices on private networks that are separated from the public internet. The type of connectivity to those networks can range from LTE to low-power wide area networks, or LP-WAN. Putting IoT devices on a private network may drive up costs, but it has advantages. Enterprises have greater control over devices and complete control over all aspects of the network, including administration and policy. I corresponded with Alexandra Rehack, who is chief analyst and head of Omdia's Internet of Things practice. She says that when considering an IoT deployment, enterprises need to consider security at all layers. That includes at the device chipset level, application, network, and cloud. In order to block intrusions, the security controls need to be end-to-end, she says. Also, scalability is a large concern. Rehack says that IoT projects often start small, but if the devices prove their worth, a project will invariably become larger. The security controls must be able to keep up. So while IoT projects are moving slower due to security concerns, the good news is that it also means enterprises are aware of how new devices on networks introduce new attack vectors. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Finally, We've all become intimately familiar with the use of teleconferencing and video conferencing capabilities in the last few months, as we scramble to replicate collaborative approaches remotely that we used to conduct in person. A lot of this has been flying by the seat of our pants, with probably the most familiar phrases used in the last few months being your microphone isn't on 
and I apologise for my cat. Technical and animal problems aside, this new world of constant communication and collaboration via web-based tools opens up for a wide array of legal exposure, particularly if the record button is pressed. That's according to Alan Brill of law firm Kroll's Cyber Risk Programme. ISMG's Matthew Schwartz spoke with Alan this week. Here's his report. What's your company's policy on audio and video conferencing? As businesses conduct more business using these tools, there are some potential privacy and security pitfalls of which they must remain aware. You want to have some rules. And I think the first rule is to engage your brain before you engage the record button. That's Alan Brill, Senior Managing Director in Kroll's Cyber Risk Practice. Think about whether this is a meeting that should be recorded, that you need to record. Now, there are some meetings, perhaps training sessions, town halls, that might by their very nature be the kind of thing that you would expect to be recorded. Other meetings that might not be, although they can be. And remember, some of the meeting apps make it clear that something is being recorded, and others may just put some sort of a dot or an icon on the screen that people may not be familiar with. And so even though you may think they know it's being recorded, they may really not. Brill says all organizations need to have clear audio and video conferencing policies in place and to train employees so they know what those policies are. We need to make sure that people who are running meetings, whether they're phone meetings or video meetings, know what the company wants them to do. We don't want each person making up their own set of rules. That's probably likely to come back to bite you at some point. Brill also says organizations need to ensure that anyone on the meeting will know that it might get recorded. Some video conferencing tools, for example, can include language in the invitation that gets emailed to participants, saying the meeting might be recorded, and by joining, you're consenting. Some of these tools have pre-canned disclaimers, others let you use something your corporate counsel's crafted. Again, however, employees should always think very, very, very carefully about whether they really need to record any given meeting. Also, they need to remember the fact that anyone else could be recording the meeting, for example, via screen recording software on their system or a smartphone. Also remember that if a record exists, the organization might be required to furnish it to others in the future. If you think about it, it's a business record. This is not something where you're talking to your kid's teacher to find out how the homeschooling is going, but this is a part of the business. And if it is recorded, you have to consider whether that is a discoverable record, whether it's something that a government regulator could demand, whether it's something that could be covered in a litigation hold if there's downstream litigation. And you want to think about that so that you can make the right decisions about whether to record something in the first place. And even when you do want to make that decision, you want to make it clear to people that you're doing it. And we've all seen cases where a meeting is being recorded, but it hasn't really started yet. And people are making remarks that in the moment may seem funny, but would definitely not seem terribly humorous if that were played in a court of law. So it's really a matter of thinking before recording. So for any organization that doesn't have clear policies for how to use 
audio and video conferencing tools, and which is in educating employees about those policies, including when they should or should not record meetings. Now is a great time to meet with your in-house counsel and get those policies in place. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time. Thank you.